need some motivation on your Chinese business endeavor, may be curious about what the Chinese business environment is all about, or want to laugh out loud listening to war stories on the ground in China, then this is your show, China Business Cast. In this episode, we discuss the journey of David Adnip of doing business in China since arriving in 2003. Why is this useful? 17 years in China actually shows that many things have changed, but most core principles have remained the same. Business culture does not change, but the business environment does. He shares how he pivoted over the years to remain relevant and how the next normal gives him a mindset of continuous learning and optimism towards future opportunities. Actually, we covered a lot in this episode. David is a longtime friend of mine. He actually helped kickstart my China career. We discuss things about China's growth, the struggles, and running a business in China. Well, hope you enjoy this one. Welcome to a new episode of the China Business Cast. My name is Simon de Raad. I'm here today with David Adnip. And he's been a longtime friend. I think the first time we met is 2007. And he helped me kickstart my career, basically, in China. And his experience and his knowledge is just amazing. And that's why I also wanted him to be on this podcast to share a little bit more about his adventures that he's been having since 2003 in China. So, David, thank you so much for joining. Simon, it's my pleasure. It's always good fun to be with you. We share a lot of thoughts and ideas together, and uh, of course, we're, as you said, I think the key word there is we're on our adventure in China. So I have a lot of respect for what you've done, and uh, so just my pleasure to be with you today. Cool. For the last few years, how did you just start your career itself in China? I know it's a long, long story, but maybe the brief version, because even, I think we've met in the past years that I've been here since 2012, and every year there was always a new adventure going on in your career, and I was always amazed about how you kept going and get things moving. Well, quickly, uh, before I came, I guess the word would say I moved to China. In other words, it was my plan to not come for a short while, but I wanted to see what was really going on here. From the reading, I knew that China was a major trend, maybe the major trend in the world, and I wanted to come and get a front row seat. So basically, I moved myself. Second thing to say is that I, uh, I didn't have a company to sponsor me. I brought myself, and so I was just one little guy that got off the airplane and tried to figure out what I was going to do. So I had a student visa to get myself in the country, and I was studying Chinese language at a local university for a semester so that I could get going. And uh, I kind of had some ideas as to what I could do, but basically, I mean, to use an expression, I was just beating the bushes. I was just a a guy out there going to as many events as I could go to. I spent, uh, you know, I I taught a little English. I, I did a little bit of this, a little bit of that really just trying to get a handle on what was, you know, what my opportunities were. I didn't really want to work for a a foreign company or even a joint venture company since my my goal was really to understand China and Chinese. I felt like I needed to be, you know, in a Chinese company. I'd rather be in a smaller company where I can uh, have some impact, some influence on the decision making and the direction of the company. The problem with this plan was I didn't speak Chinese. And uh, so how exactly I was going to do that? My background is law. 
I practiced law in uh, in the United States in Texas for many years, but uh, I did litigation law. So this meant that uh, to do that in China, you'd have to you know pass a bar exam, and foreigners can't take the bar exam in China. So I thought maybe I'd find an opportunity in a Chinese law firm, help them uh, manage their firm. Uh, but I was a little bit early in 2003. This just wasn't happening. So I just was uh, just went around and tried to figure out you know what I was going to do. I was very fortunate to move along with my story. In 2004, I went to an event and through uh, meeting a guy at that event, I got it. I went and met a bunch of people that had just started a new company, and it was a recruiting company, what's uh, known in the industry as uh, headhunting. So this little company had just started out, had started by a group of young Chinese who had been lawyers and decided they want to be consultants, recruiting consultants, and they had established a new company. And this wasn't even on my radar, but it was. Uh, it, it fit me very well. I liked them. I thought they were honest, had integrity. And they were smart, and uh, it, it looked like a good field. We had signed the WTO, China had, in, uh, I guess that was in, uh, in uh, December 82 or 81, uh, and so the, 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 it was being implemented, and uh, law firms were needing talent, and so it was really a, a dynamic thing. So I jumped in and, and uh, was doing, did the recruiting company for uh, 10 years. Yeah, because you were based in Beijing to begin with, I think, right? No, I've always been in Shanghai. What you may be thinking is we opened an office for our recruiting company in Beijing. So I used to travel to Beijing, ah. which was really quite wonderful because there's a lot of history in Beijing and uh, you know art activities. And so it was just wonderful for me to have the opportunity to travel up there on some business trips. Yeah. So, so fast forward to now, this recruiting. I remember you saying... The recruiting became more and more tough because LinkedIn became more and more popular. So <laughs> to, to identify successful law individuals was more difficult to stand out from, from the bunch. So what made you, what are you recently doing? And Well, one of the things about business as well as life is that uh, things change. And the competition in business comes after you and regulation changes and so on. So, yes, I mean, the, the recruiting business is basically a matchmaking business uh, where you're a, an agent in the middle introducing the talent side to the employer side. And if in the old days, you, you had a steel filing cabinet and had hard, you know, printed resumes. Uh, and then you, you know, were able to use that information to, to, you know, to your advantage to make a business out of it. Well, once all of this information got posted online, <laughs> the two sides, the buyers and the sellers in this case in the market, could find each other. We also had, uh, you know, a lot of recruiting companies, the regulations changed in recruiting legal recruiting companies in Hong Kong or, of course, outside in Singapore or, or in New York. Uh, they could reach into our market, what, what we thought of as our market. So, yeah, the, the competition got a little bit more fierce. And then my, my business partner went another direction. And so I was running the company and uh, a lot of things were going online, digital, uh, digital recruiting. And so it just looked like I needed to do something else. So I looked around and uh, decided, uh, you know, I, I, I'm an adventure kind of guy and looking, I, I don't have to follow exactly the same path. So I had been, I realized I had been a, a service provider, a consultant all my life. I was a lawyer for 20 years uh, and then, so that's a legal uh, consultant and then I was a recruiting consultant for 10 years. 
So I decided I want to be in the product business. This, uh, you know, I was thinking scalable was in my mind. And of course, e-commerce was coming along. So I identified a, an, another Chinese partner. I've only had two Chinese partners since the time I've been in China. And so we joined. He had uh, started a little company and e-commerce was coming along. In fact, I know you and I had several conversations. Yeah, I was yeah, very interested sure. in what I could learn from you. Mm. So we did that. But it was a startup company. So we did that. did that from 14 to 17. And we had some success. I would say it was modest, but it, it wasn't going exactly where I, I thought it needed to. So I'm now in what in, in, in my life in China, at least as my work in China, I'm now in phase three. In 2017, I registered my own company. They changed the registration requirements in China, so I was able to register a consulting company. So I've got my uh, consulting company, and that uh, allows me to have various clients. I don't just work for one company. So I like that. It kind of gets me back to the model of when I was a practicing lawyer in the U.S. I have various clients. So I'm a, a cross-border kind of expert. I'll have clients that are outside of China want to do something in China or Chinese. Uh, I'm more interested in finding Chinese companies that may want to do something outside. I'm good at business strategy, uh, marketing, of course, investment uh, side of things. I'm not an investor, uh, you know, don't have the investment, but I have lots of connection and investment. So uh, basically, I look for small teams that have got a good idea and uh, need just need someone to help them put their shoulder to the wagon and, uh, you know, try to push it forward. Yeah. So the consulting company you set up, is that in the free trade zone in Shanghai? Or? No, actually, I'm, I'm registered in Jing'an district. Oh, okay. Yeah. So what changed that it made it possible to register? Well, in, uh, when, I, when I came here in 2003, if I had uh, chosen to register a company, it would have been the registered capital requirements were very high. Mm. In other words, it would have been quite expensive to, for just one, one person to set up their own little company. Uh, but because the Chinese government was wanting to encourage more entrepreneurship um, and then they had better uh, you know, uh, systems of regulation and regulating the business environment in China, they had lowered substantially. So it made it quite uh, possible uh, for someone, you know, a single person like me to uh, register a company. So that's great uh, because then I, I basically then work for myself. So it's finding people I like. I sort of had three criteria that I check on. Uh, one is I, I try to find, I, I want to work with people I like, people that I think of as is helping me raise the level of my game. In other words, they need to tell good jokes. If they can tell better jokes than me, then I'm going to get better at telling jokes. <laughs> if, they can, if they can work harder than I can, then I'm, I'm going to learn to work harder from them. In other words, find good people, people with integrity, people that have a, you know, want to get something done. Uh, two is uh, what is their industry and what's their plan to, uh, to you know, to get the fruit, uh, to uh, what's their ladder to get up to the fruit in the tree. There are a lot of good opportunities, but and, and a lot of people are chasing good opportunities, but the question is, do they really have the resources that's necessary to get there? And then three in, in my consideration is, you know, what can David contribute? What can I contribute to their plan? If there's some opportunity for me, then let's jump in and let's get something done. Yeah. You mentioned that you had two Chinese business partners before. Uh, I think that there's also still a stigma a little bit about joint ventures or cooperations with Chinese. What, what's your main takeaway from this kind of experience with these two? Or what you see with others that partner with Chinese, maybe more general is also okay? Well, you know, all human beings, um, we, we, we all human beings look at the world uh, based on, you know, how we were raised, how, how we came up. 
So Chinese trying to, you know, uh, you know, get in a business with a foreigner, I mean, you're just kind of setting up some kind of conflicts immediately because of just the way we look at the world differently. Of course, the other it's, it's not all negative because the other side to that is that you get the diversity. You're getting eyes looking at something from two directions. The trick is, is of course, with all uh, joint venture arrangements or cooperations, whether it's with someone you know in your own country, your your countrymen, or uh, you know in, in a situation when you've got a foreigner or a Chinese in, in China, is you need to have enough talk and enough. Uh, you, you need to be grounded. You, you need to you know have some some common philosophies, some common kind of approaches as to how you're going to solve problems. So for me personally, I I don't think it's any more difficult for me to find a, a good partner in China as it would be for me to find a good partner in the U.S. It, it's certainly there are some specific challenges. You you know as as I said, looking at things differently from a different culture, but the more difficult is just making sure that you're aligned. And this would be true if I'm looking for a partner in the U.S. or if I'm looking for a partner in China. In other words, I just don't make a big distinction. In fact, when I walk down the road in Shanghai, I'm not a foreigner walking down the road. I'm just a guy walking down the road. Like all the people around me who are almost 100% Chinese, we're all just trying to figure out how to survive, how to take care of our families, uh, how to find opportunity. So you mentioned earlier about learning Chinese and also the language itself. Do you think that being your Chinese level is conversational, maybe less. But do you think it's necessary to be able to run a business or be active in a business environment in, in China, knowing the language? Uh, the, the answer is, I, I think first it depends. And by that, I mean, it'll depend on what kind of industry you're in. In some industries, it, it would be more essential than others. With that said, I'm kind of on the side of believing that it's not as necessary to speak Chinese language as a lot of foreigners would believe. In other words, I, some people, I think some foreigners kind of use that as a little bit of an excuse. I don't say all of them do. But in other words, there, there are plenty of people who speak very good Chinese. And then one of the very fortunate things uh, for us native speakers is there are just so many Chinese who speak such excellent English. So in a lot of businesses, if the key thing, though, is getting your team together and, and choosing the right people, including your business partner. If you've got that, you know, in other words, every person will have strengths and weaknesses. And so, of course, my weakness is Chinese language. But if I can choose well and have good partners and colleagues, they can certainly handle the Chinese side of things. So it's absolutely helpful. And depending on the industry, it's, it may be essential. I haven't found it to be essential. Yeah, I see that. I hear that from more people. Just finding a reliable partner, then you're you're never going to be a full national or like a fluent speaker anyway. Or it's going to be very very tough, and you're still going to be perceived as a foreigner as well. So you already have the disadvantage in that sense to to grow something to scale in the China environment. Yes, although I, I will say at this point, terribly excited to be living in the current age we live in because there's just so much interesting technology and. I think it's even getting more exciting and interesting in the, in the coming years. One of the things I am getting interested in is this. We're getting pretty close, I believe, to getting a, a, a translation device that we uh, we foreigners uh, can put in our ear and it'll pick up the Chinese language around it and translate it for us, you know, in our ear. This is just wild. This is just crazy. So uh, I, I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you already have apps where you can translate what you see on the street. Yes. You take a picture or yes. even on the fly, it translates. So, yes, yeah. I have that on my phone now. <laughs> awesome. 
So what I really like about you is you almost try to understand China from a scientific point of view. You're very, very well read about everything that's going on and, uh, and following a lot of journals. So I was just curious, what is it that you've recently read about China or China business that you think is worth sharing here in the, uh, to the audience? Well, uh, there are just so many things to, uh, <laughs> that are so interesting out there. One of the things is that based on the political situation, it seems to be clear at the, at the leadership level that the leaders are realizing that the opportunity for China ahead is to develop technology and use technology well in the society. This would be true in any society. And so a lot of that technology is now not going to be uh, maybe available for China to purchase from the outside, and China is going to have to develop it itself. So then the government, of course, is putting policies in place to facilitate that and have been doing that for the last few years, but I think that trend is accelerating. So that's really uh, quite fascinating because now then, as the government puts the policies in place, then the, the, the work, normal Chinese people are going to take up the task. And uh, this is really uh, quite fascinating to, to see how this is developing and how Chinese people are working together uh, to be innovative, uh, to do new things, and, and to develop it. It's just, it's quite exciting. It's quite exciting to see this all coming together. And uh, yeah, I'm optimistic. It's going to be a, a game changer in a, in a way, just not only for the, maybe the global economy, but definitely for the Chinese economy itself and how self-sustaining they might right. be. And how well this year this year already showed how many people were or companies were depending on China from a supply chain point yes. of view. So that is also going to be something that's going to have a lasting impact as well to maybe either move away from China or get more embedded into the Chinese supply chain itself. You're exactly right. I mean, uh, there are a lot of uh, lessons, I guess we could say, that are going to come out of uh, this this COVID year, and so strategies and, and ways of, of thinking about how to be resilient. How to provide backup is going to be there. It comes to my mind, I mean, all of us, you know, have to deal with career and career challenges. You know, we're, we're not living in an age where a person gets a job and, and keeps it the rest of their, you know, their working life. All of us are going to have many jobs. So probably you know friends that have come up against a situation and their company closed or for some reason they were out of a job. And obviously this is a personal crisis for, for, for the person involved. But the other side of that is that when we're kind of thrown into a crisis is when we have to reach down inside and see what's important and get going. And so therefore, that, that's kind of what I was expressing a moment ago. If China can't, uh, you know, maybe China as a country is maybe blocked from some of the technology that they need for their development, then it's their opportunity to just be more innovative, to, to figure out how to do that. And uh, so it, it, you actually can turn initially may appear to be kind of a crisis or a very negative situation, actually turn it into a positive situation. Yeah. So I'm quite enthusiastic to see uh, how, how Chinese, and I'm not talking about at the government level now, I mean people at the individual level, how they respond and just get, get more innovative. So what would be the opportunity or, or the benefit then for foreigners to, that are active or want to be active in the Chinese market, either with a company or as an individual? Well, I, I think Before I came to China, I was trying to uh, figure out what, what was my gap, what, what did I need to do to get going here. And so I uh, did quite a bit of reading and thinking uh, in, the, in the months before I came and then in the months after I came here. 
And I decided that the foreigners that came here, individuals, investors, or companies that did well, is that they came with a learning attitude rather than came with an attitude of they knew something and that they were going to either sell it or, or exploit it somehow in China. Of course, that, that's valid to a certain degree, but I, I think the, the main priority is to come with a learning kind of attitude. So uh, I, I think that kind of represents a certain kind of humility. It comes with a, uh, an opportunity that's ahead of you. If you're a foreigner, you come with a certain mindset or certain uh, advantages that you're bringing uh, to the China market, but you can then marry that up. You can match that up uh, very successfully if you come with a learning attitude to see what's going on here, how, how people respond, how's the best way to treat people, how to, how to integrate. And so, yeah, learning. Has that changed over the time, that, that, that role, that kind of niche, that gap, as you call it? Not the, not the basic concept. I think that uh, anytime you're, uh, what I'm describing here would be the same as if, if there was a Chinese company and they had been very successful in China and they were feeling quite uh, strong and positive about their technology and in about uh, you know the financial situation and they're talking to me about going to the United States. I'd say, well, you know, you've been highly successful in China, but it's just a different market altogether. And so you need to go with a, a learning attitude, go with a modest kind of plan with learning first, take some what I call baby steps. In fact, when I came to China, after I got here, as I, as I thought more about what I was doing, I, I decided I would call it the baby model, which is basically that before a baby can run, it needs to learn how to crawl. And then it can crawl, and then it can walk, and then the baby can run. And uh, there's nothing wrong with being a baby because we love babies. Babies have their entire future ahead of them. So it's positive that a baby moves forward into their future. So yeah, go with a, a modest and a learning attitude and approach local people very respectfully. So it applies either direction you're going. It kind of sets the tone what you mentioned that now one of your areas might be the other in a reverse way where before it was more western companies looking for ways to localize and get connected in china it might be what you just described now more chinese companies doing very well at domestic market looking to scale globally and trying to connect in that sense absolutely absolutely and and, and i very much uh think it's positive that Chinese companies are going out and frankly quite a few companies in China are, I mean they have a certain ceiling, um, in other words they've been very successful in China and so for their future growth they, they need to look out outside. But just because you're successful in one market doesn't mean you can immediately uh, translate that to another market. For one reason, all your executives, all, all your workers are very well trained in responding, you know, in the market where you are, your home market. And when you go out, uh, they're in a foreign market. So you have to, uh, of course, ally with, find local cooperators. So then you have to bring in different kinds of skills. So yeah, th this would be what I'd be very interested in is helping uh, Chinese companies uh, to go out. Mm -hmm. So uh, you, as an advisor or consultant, What, what is then the most common question that you, you get asked and, and, and what would be your answer to that? Well, of course, my background is law. So a lot of times, I, I guess the introductory kind of things that people are thinking about is they need a registration. They're thinking about compliance kind of issues. Of course, you know, I think like a lawyer, but I don't have current 
knowledge of laws and regulation. I mean, you've got to look that up. You've got to be current on that. Uh, but you, so you need to find a suitable, uh, you know, lawyer. And of course, I help, I help connect people, people who are actually practicing, lawyers who are actually practicing now. But I guess the question that where I try to, uh, I guess, get people to start thinking, uh, maybe that might be a way to approach your question, is thinking about how, you know, that uh, things work a certain way one place, but they work differently someplace else. Uh, because all of us human beings, we look out at the world and, and we see the world the way we see the world, but everyone sees it a little bit differently. So uh, trying to develop, I guess you might think of like a third eye, in other words, uh, or finding people who can be a third eye. You need a little bit different perspective on it to kind of, uh, you know, help you, uh, well, make the best plan, be the most successful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So just now, before we did the recording, we had a small conversation, my wife, you, and myself, and you mentioned that it was a new term I'd never heard before, because you have the, a new normal, which yeah. people use this year a lot, but you mentioned the next new normal, what was the word? Well, the next normal. The next normal. Yeah. So what is, that was new for me. Can you maybe explain a little bit what you mean with next normal? Well, I picked it up or saw it uh, reading uh, articles uh, published by you know, McKinsey Consulting. Uh, McKinsey has really put out an extraordinary number of excellent, excellent articles. I mean, they always do this, but especially in this COVID year. So I've learned a lot from them. I've noticed that they moved from calling what I normally say and I normally hear the term new normal, and they're talking about the next normal. And I like that a lot better because actually normal is only for a very short period of time and then we're moving again. So next kind of implies this kind of rolling, I guess, kind of like a movie. I mean, and uh, instead of new is sort of new and old, this is kind of binary. There are only two. But next is the next and the next and the next and the next. It kind of gets you in the mindset that you can't just be sitting still. <laughs> Things are actually changing all the time. Yeah. And so I, I kind of like that term. I, so I, I, but I, but I, I don't take credit for it. I, I, I'll give the credit to the McKinsey guys. So what was the, what's the main takeaway from what the next normal then looks like or what's, what's the kind of the scene they're setting for that? Uh, well, I guess the, let's bring up another uh, expression, the devil's in the detail. There, there's, it's hard to figure that out, Simon. Uh, I mean, you know, in other words, smart people are trying to figure that out. It's still, you know, there. It's still some uncertainty about it's all that. Like Jack Ma introduced new retail without having a clear That's right. path. And then this is it's kind of the same well, the next normal. Now, when we say that, I think there's kind of a. In some ways, we can be, you know, say, "Wow, you know, this is just too difficult. Why don't things just settle down? You know, life would be, you know, easier." But actually, if you look at it a little bit differently, the, the fact that, you know, there always is an ex-normal is creates a freshness and, and an opportunity, especially if you're a little player. As things are changing and things are rolling, there's an opportunity for, for little players and innovative players to, to jump into a space, to just see things a little bit differently. Uh, one of the problems, of course, huge challenges for big organizations is they're like one giant big ship. They, they, they can turn very quickly. And so they get very efficient at doing what they do in the direction in which they're going, uh, but making turns is very difficult. So the fact that there is a, a situation where things are fast changing is actually opportunity for a lot of little players to get in, jump in and, and do something. I'm a little player. I'm not part of a big ship. So that's kind of, you know, where I see the excitement and where I get excited and where I have enthusiasm. And yeah. so even though, I mean, this is a crisis year, certainly, uh, I'm just looking at the positive side of it. 
as you know from our conversations in the past, I'm very much a guy who believes in the, the concept of half full or half empty. We each have our own attitude about that, and I just, I'm fortunate I'm, I can see the, the half full. Yeah, yeah, for, for sure. I can uh, definitely relate to that. That is, uh, that's your, your mindset. It's very uh, positive, optimistic, and uh, about what's happening in China and the role that China is playing itself uh, globally. So you're really advocate on pro-China and also that. So when you, as you were in the recruiting for quite some years, and also during the years as a foreigner living here, you see a lot of people come and go. So the, what do you see? This what, what would be your main advice for people coming to China, or and what's like the reason why, why most people are leaving? Well, I've already touched on, I guess, on the point about people uh, coming to China is to uh, come very much with a uh, open mind and a learning uh, attitude. You know, try to uh, look at the world more like how, as I said, the baby model, look at the world how a young person would or a baby would look at, the, at something with a fresh kind of eye. In other words, that doesn't mean you throw away all your experience. You just don't bring that to the fore. You bring to the fore and you keep in front of you, you know, I'm learning, I'm learning, and then, you know, asking questions. And then, you know, that takes you into the, in, into the future and, and how things are. In terms of why people leave, I guess key reason is a lot of people is they end up not being very successful. In other words, I guess you could say most of the people who stay are people who end up being successful in one way or another. Of course, the reason that a lot of people leave is they come on rather short-term kind of assignments. People that are sent by their companies are typically here for a few years, so even if they wish to stay, they would have to leave their company and that may be difficult for them. But a primary reason, as I'm sure you've heard, that a lot of people will leave, a lot of foreigners will leave, is when they're thinking about their children's education. This is a key reason why people who say are successful in China like to be here, but they decide to go back to their home country. It's typically for uh, children's education. Yeah, I'm, I will be one of them. Yes. <laughs> and so that's definitely uh, something that uh, I can... Uh, there are, of course, excellent schools in China, but there's some challenges, I mean, you know, in terms of living and, and maybe the cost, I mean, the, the areas where they are getting the children there and then the cost of those schools and, and such as that. So I see that as the big challenge for a lot of expats is the children's situation. Yeah, it becomes more and more difficult to land an expat job with all the all the benefits that brings in. Uh, to launch a, a business, I would say it becomes easier to set it up. Yes, just to be able to Definitely. get a sustainable business and scalable business, that's becoming more and more difficult in the Chinese ecosystem and environment. Yes, you know, in the earlier years when I was here, they kind of used the expression sometime about China as the Wild West. I'm not sure that's entirely true, but it's certainly true that there was a lot less regulation uh, in the early years. In other words, it was a little bit more free in terms of various things you could do. And, and of course, China, like any developing country, I mean, they develop more rules. It becomes more of a rule-based kind of operations to lots of things. So that is good in lots of respects, of course. But in other parts of that, that puts a load on business. But it, so it's a, just a different kind of game. So I personally don't look at the earlier days I was here and when some people called the Wild West is better than today. Another thing that I would say is better today, I mean, or more give you more advantages, is there's less cost in, in reaching out to people because we've got all the digital kind of tools. Of course, there's another side to that, whereas it's easier and less costly for one company to reach out to the market. That's true for the entire market. So <laughs> the competition is just different. 
So I would say the competition is more intense, but there's still opportunities. There's still opportunities. Yeah, the uh, size of China and the demands of the communities and the people itself keeps evolving. That is always the next, and I think the next uh, will definitely be able an opportunity for anyone who wants to be part of it. So that's well, I was reading the other day that, uh, I mean, particularly if you're in a business that's going to be providing uh, services or products to uh, urbanized uh, middle-class population, is uh, currently the uh, individuals part of GDP, individual purchases, it's right around, I think, 39% in Chinese economy. Whereas in the U.S., you're talking about, uh, is about 67%. So as China becomes more urbanized and more middle class, that's just a huge bunch of people that need goods and services. That's one of the things that uh, China does very well because of the online uh, e-commerce, the payment systems, the quite ease to, do, to deliver. So there's just, it's just a dynamic and, and, and I don't think it's late. I think there's still lots of opportunity out there. Goods and services to people moving into the middle class. Yeah, I don't know. We, with the podcast, we're trying to also reach people from outside the main cities, the first, second tier cities. So if you're listening and you're from there, please do reach out to me. The reason why is we see also more Chinese going back to their hometowns. And the setting is also, it makes the Chinese government makes it more and more possible to create a service industry from where they are. And they bring the skill set of an urban area into their hometown, which then will speed up the process there as well. Absolutely. And uh, so, I mean, this is you're absolutely on target, major trend there. And then, of course, we've got now uh, in the recent years, the fast trains that make it possible for people to live in more uh, remote areas and move away from big cities, but still be able to get to the big cities. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, normally we have this tune about what's your war story. So that's basically how I also would like to end the conversation with you. Do you have any Well, I'll tell one anecdote that I quite often uh, think about. You know, it was, this is a story that came, I, I guess I was still in my first year here, maybe toward the end of my first year in, in, in Shanghai. And I got uh, through some uh, friend, I guess, or someone had invited me to coach, provide English coaching to a business executive uh, whose company was uh, going public and it was going IPO. So they knew I was a lawyer, and they thought that would be, you know, a plus for their business executive. And uh, so I thought, you know, I, I was doing all several little jobs in those days as I was trying to figure out just how I was going to make my way in China. And I won't mention the name of this company, but it's a well-known company. You know the name of the company today. And they were very, very successful and have continued to be very successful. And this guy was the founder or one of the major founders. And so he was a very nice guy. He told me about how the company started. We probably met uh, five or six times uh, in his office. And uh, I had to uh, sign a confidentiality that I wouldn't uh, say anything about the company for three years, uh, which I didn't. And uh, anyway, he, he and I got along famously. And, uh, you know, as I began realizing more detail, more about his company and who he was, I thought, man, you know, this is really a big fish, a VIP. <laughs> and maybe, you know, with this company going public, I mean, I'm not necessarily in this, this company's industry, but, uh, you know, might be some opportunities for me. Anyway, he said to me one day, he says, as it worked out, I mean, the, the assignment ended and, and that was the end of our relationship and I haven't had any contact with him or the company since. But one, one day, and it may have been the last time we met, he said, David, do you play golf? 
And uh, I had played golf before, but I was not a golfer, as I'd say. And I said, no. I've always thought I should have said yes. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, maybe there was opportunity there with this, some highly successful company that was going public. Goldman Sachs was uh, advising them. I mean, it was it was a big deal. It was the big fish that got away, maybe. Perhaps. Perhaps. perhaps, perhaps, perhaps. I've yeah. always wondered if I... Yeah. Should I have said... I, because I, I could have knocked that ball around the course. I wouldn't have been very good. <laughs> Yeah, even if you would have said uh, yes and you would have messed up, now you also know, saying no, you also know contact. So. Well, you know, I don't, I'm not sure that says it's a war story, but I mean, it was one of my lessons in China. It's kind of like, uh, always just kind of go for it, uh, I guess, kind of. I mean, I think you've got to be um, careful and thoughtful and so on, but uh, sometimes, you know, you just need to go, go for it. And I should have said, oh yeah, I play golf. Mm. And maybe I'd have been invited to the golf course with him, and then who knows how that would have worked. Yeah, exactly. Because that would have been an extended period of time. I mean, you know, I've thought over the years I should get into golf because I think one of the reasons it works so well is it takes a long time to play nine holes or 18 holes. So this is an extended period of time to have yeah. a chat. Yeah. Whereas, I mean, when I went and did the, the English, you know, chat with him, it might have been 30 minutes or an hour, and then it's in his office. It's a little bit formal. If we'd been out under the blue sky on the green, you know, fairway and, you know, talking for two or three or four hours. Yeah. And it's, uh, I remember in, in the, we had a company event once in St. Jim. There's a golf resort. I think they have 18, 18 holes or something. It's huge. We just we made use of the driving range and to, to invite Chinese customers to be there. But it's, there is a lot of facilities for to play golf in China as well. And it might not be... Uh, super popular, super, super mainstream yet, but it's definitely uh, yeah funny. Is there, is there anything that I've missed that you would like to you would like to share? Nothing uh, really comes to mind, Simon. Just that it's a pleasure to uh, catch up with you. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, and we haven't talked in a while. Mm. Uh, one of the reasons, of course, is this COVID year, but uh, things are, are looking up now, and uh, all the unknown unknowns are now just becoming unknowns, and so and the vaccines are coming out, and so yeah. So it's good to catch up with you, and uh, thank you so much for your, your kind invitation. Cool. So if people want to follow you, David, where, where would you send them to? Uh, find me on LinkedIn. Okay. And uh, my, my, my last name is Atnip, A-T-N-I-P, David Atnip. Okay, cool. I will send a link, and uh, put a link in the show notes. And then, uh, Thanks a lot for coming. Thanks a lot uh, for your time. It's always a pleasure to have you here and uh, catch up on what you've been reading and have been learning about China. I always have a really nice takeaways. So thanks, and I hope to see you soon again. Thank you, Simon. Doing business in China is a complex world. You can quickly feel alone and lost in its maze. But don't worry, China Business Cast is here for you. Sign up for our newsletter and regular updates on our website at www.chinabusinesscast.com. Thanks for tuning in.